Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This week on the show, we talked about Washington Irving and his influence on the holiday of Christmas. Um, I read some very spirited articles that were sort of uh, alleging that Charles Dickens had been unfairly given credit for a lot of stuff that should have been Washington Irving's credit. Uh, I don't know if I would go that far, but it is really interesting to see some of the things that that clearly influenced Charles Dickens and may have influenced the Twas the Night Before Christmas poem. Yeah. We did not talk in great detail about the legend of Sleepy Hollow and the Disney version of that that really scared me so much as a child. And a big part of it, uh, as a child, I had a very clear sense of, of fairness. And if something was unfair, I found it just incredibly stressful. And it makes it very clear that if Ichabod Crane got back over the bridge, he would be safe from the Headless Horseman. Nicobod Crane gets over the bridge, but then the Headless Horseman throws his flaming pumpkin head. It scared me so much as a kid. And then the next day, Ichabod Crane's gone. And I'm like, but he made it across the bridge. He was supposed to be safe. It very much upset me when I was little. Uh, loved it. Lo- <laughs> Um, yeah, the Headless Horseman remains a favorite memory of the Magic Kingdom Halloween Parade. Mm-hmm. I love all of that stuff. And I will, I made a, a strange in my head horror connection while we were talking about Washington Irving. <laughs> because Tell me. there's that segment where we were talking about how he had put up notices about how Diedrich Knickerbocker had gone missing right before he published a book under that name. And I was like, oh my God, he did the original Blair Witch marketing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that was Yeah. That was that That's was pretty all. cool. <laughs> Are we gonna get to the ridiculous letters? <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I again I don't I don't know if Charles Dickens meant for this to sound as suggestive as it sounded to me. The first bit of this I found was just the sentence, questions come thronging to my pen as to the lips of people who meet after long hoping to do so. And I was like, are we on archive of our own right now? (laughs) Let me go see if somebody has written Washington Irving, Charles Dickens slash. There was also... As I understand it, this was a dinner that Washington Irving hosted. The topic of the conversation for the evening was on copyright law. Charles Dickens gave this sort of address thanking Washington Irving. And he said, I wish I had bookmarked it. He was like, Two nights out of seven, at least two nights out of seven, I go upstairs to my bedroom with Washington Irving under my arm, and I was like, this sounds like something someone would write 
in their Dickens Irving slash. Yes. It reminds me of, I don't know if you remember when we did our Bram Stoker episode and he wrote that letter to Walt Whitman that was similarly like... Same. Just intense and really like way suggestive wording. And I had the same thing where I'm like, is this just like a thing where it's like the turn of phrases of the day today sound a little lascivious or no, no, he was clearly pretty much in love with Walt Whitman. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah. I, um, I went down a whole rabbit hole of trying to find, I was like, are, are, can I get my hands on more of these letters? Uh, because there are various collections of letters and I, I could not get more of them, but I was like, are they all like this? Do they all have this tone? At least on Dickens's part, um, I did not have the Washington Irving letter that prompted that response from Dickens to see what Washington Irving's letter had sounded like. Right. But then I think about, have you ever had that moment where someone you really admire just like offhandedly reaches out to you or says something and you're so worried about saying the right thing or like you meet someone that you really admire and then you end up sounding like a way overblown, like intense oh, yeah. nerd. I mean, yeah. I, I see how that could also be the case. <laughs> yeah, I just had an embarrassing memory that I... Don't even. We'll ju- we'll just we'll just <laughs> tamp that down was, and bury it again. It was me- it was it was meeting uh like not even meeting like being at the same bar as a as a famous person at Dragon Con, and just like in that moment being mature and professional and saying something like, "I really like your work. Thank you so much," which is just. Just practice saying that if you're going to be around some famous yeah. people. Just is fine. But then, like, I turned to a friend of mine, and what I said next was not nearly that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, listen. Everybody makes a misstep now and again. Um, sure. I will tell you, I did not realize how much of an influence, because I associate Washington Irving as you mentioned at the top of the episode, with Halloween things and Sleepy Hollow specifically, I really did not know how much of an influence he had on Christmas in the U.S. Yeah, it was, that's, um, you know, something I had seen little headlines of articles floating around and had not really looked into. And I didn't realize until doing the research for this episode that it wasn't that he wrote fictional stories that were about Christmas, sort of akin to A Christmas Carol, that these were like essays that, uh, you know, might have been fictionalized in some ways, but were based on a holiday that he spent in England and kind of like importing English traditions back to North America, which makes it kind of a circular thing because it was like Christmas not really widely adopted in North America, more adopted in England. Washington Irving writes this stuff that starts popularizing it more in North America. And then, like, that loops back over to Charles Dickens, who, like, reincorporated some of the same ideas into his own writing uh, back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean, how people think of Christmas as a celebration. Yeah. It's, um, it's fast. I Again, like I said at the end of that, I think if Washington Irving walked into, like, 
any retail establishment on December 5th in the U.S., they would be like, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah. I'm like that. And, you know, I was raised Methodist. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even like I was not raised in a religion that was celebrating this as a holiday. Yeah, I'm 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 fine with all of the ridiculous holiday everything. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have a. Uh, I, it's not even an immunity to it. I love that stuff. So, yeah. This week on the show, we talked about Jethro Tull, not the band. Although, uh, hearing his story made me wonder why anyone would name themselves after him. So, Jethro Tull is a is a band I'm aware of, not a band I've ever, like, extensively listened to. If mm-hmm. I had, I might have known who Jethro Tull was named for. I think I just probably assumed Jethro Tull was named for someone in the band. <laughs> That's what I would have told you without hesitation. Yeah, and I uh, I didn't go trying to figure that out, but I read just a random sentence somewhere that claimed that they had changed their name a whole bunch of times and someone just suggested the name Jethro Tull and they went with it. I don't know if that's totally accurate, but sure, seems like that seems reasonable to me. That seems like a reason the band would, would pick a name. Um, d- doing research on this, was challenging because there were a lot of results about the bands everywhere I was trying to look. Uh, Not as much when I was diving into, like, uh, academic journals because while there are, you know, academic articles about music and musicians, including recent music and musicians, um, I found more stuff that was actually about agriculture without having to put in quite as many qualifiers to try to weed out all the band stuff, uh, I was I kept giggling about what this is gonna do to like s- search algorithms in podcast apps. Um, <laughs> is it is this episode gonna randomly show up on music roundups or something? They'll be like, "This is not what I was after." Nope. Sorry. Nope. Boy, what a crab. Yeah, I the uh, the more I read about him, the more I felt like he was really a jerk, and he really just seemed resentful of all the people who worked for him. He had that statement where he was like, "It was four times less labor to do it this way," and I was like, "Are you really telling me that having your workers dig a channel, carefully put the seed in it, and cover it up? You're telling me that took them less work than throwing the seed by hand? I don't, I don't think your assessment of that is correct." And I think probably having, you know, worked for money for more than 20 years at this point, I know for sure when a boss has come to give me a task that was a complete pain and a big time suck to do, if that same boss came back to tell me to do the same task, uh, regardless of the fact that it had been a huge time suck and a pain, I also would have been frustrated Jethro Tull would probably say I was balking just to spite him when re- really I was saying, no, this is this is way more work, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, all of his um, feelings about his workers just kind of give me the, no, thank you, sir. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't I don't like it. Um there have been other episodes where like the historiography involved in a, a historical thing. Like I've been able to sort of to sort of better trace how that progressed. My general sense is that there was a time when Jethro Tull was sort of like held up as this example of British ingenuity who had invented the seed drill that was an immediate success and all of his husbandry methods were 100% revolutionary to British agriculture. And it's like, some of those things are, they have a grain of truth in them. He did make a seed drill. He wasn't the first person on earth ever to use one. Apparently, his instructions for building one were so complicated that he took them out of one of the editions of the book because he was like, if anybody tries to follow these instructions, this is not going to work and they're just going to be mad at me. (laughs) Uh, And it's been in more recent years that people have been more like, Jethro Tull was kind of a crackpot. (laughs) Yeah. I Okay, we have to talk about the mouths. Okay, yeah. Never has the word mouth started to feel so weird and uncomfortable to me (laughs) as thinking about it (laughs) on the ends of roots. It reminded me so much of animalcules. Sure. And that whole um, other strange story. (laughs) Yeah. Of uh, thinking, you know, that tiny things worked in a way that they did not. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have so many questions that I cannot ever have answered about how he yeah. landed at root mouths. How do how do you think plants move these root mouths exactly? Yeah, <laughs> um, and his, so horse hoeing husbandry is like four hundred and something pages long. So thoroughly reading a four hundred and something page long book, especially because it has long s's in it. And I have said before I enjoy reading things with long s's in them, but after the last. Uh, working on this and working on platypuses, I'm a little burned out on figuring out what the long S's are supposed to be, whether they are an F or an S. Uh, So it's possible that he elucidated more somewhere in that book about exactly what these mouths look like, but I don't think he did. And so I'm not sure if he was sort of envisioning this as more like a pore, like a pore in the root, or whether he was really thinking like a little mouth with little tiny teeth, like a little, like if you had Medusa hair with little snake mouths on the ends of the roots that were eating eating the little soil particles. That's just not how it works. So that is also a thing that feels a little like child logic to me. Like if you think that your roots are munching on little pieces of dirt. See, I think of it not so much as child logic Mm-hmm. As I do the fancy of someone who is extremely confident and has never been questioned by someone he respected. Sure. Of course it's animal mouths. What else what else could be happening with roots? Of course that's what it is. The finer you make the dirt, the easier the root mouth can eat it. Can slurp it right in. <laughs> it's not it's not how it works. <laughs> uh yeah. <laughs> I found one volume of uh, Switzer's rebuttals and I th- there were just so many gems in it of him just basically destroying everything he thought was wrong about Jethro Tull. Uh, it was all a pleasure to read, except I did get tired of puzzling out the long S's. <laughs> 
Yeah, I um I wish that there were some way to figure out how many of his claims regarding his success were fibs. Oh yeah. I wish there were a way to go back and like sift through the land he lived on and be like, no, we have evidence that wheat crop number seven was a train wreck. I don't know what <laughs> you think of 13 years equals, but that's not accurate. Yeah. Remember when you plowed that whole crop under because it failed? That might happen. <laughs> right? Just a I'm theory. making that up. That's not a thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I have lots of questions also about how successful. Like, he had some pretty high-profile high supporters who thought he was for sure onto something. But his detractors were also very vocal. <laughs> oh, oh, Jethro Tull. May you rest in peace. (laughs) That's the nicest thing I can say about him. Yeah. I hope your workers had someone who was less of a jerk. Uh, (laughs) uh, If you would like to send us a note, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We'll be back tomorrow with a Saturday classic and then next week with something new. Everybody take care of yourself this weekend. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 